But this afternoon, we're going to focus on hell. And so I need to pray before we try to talk about this. Father, we confess to you that this subject is almost overwhelming for us to talk about. We acknowledge that it's an incredibly painful subject for many of us who are here. And in fact, it should be painful for all of us. As we think about neighbors and colleagues, never mind family and those that are close to us. So I pray that as we spend this time, you'll be gracious to us. As we consider your perfect justice, will you give us a fresh concern for those around us? Give us a fresh hope for them too, as we remember your mercy alongside your wrath. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hell has been described as the ultimate horror of the universe, and that's an accurate description. It may not be something we want to think about, but we absolutely need to think about it. For one thing, it's part of our church's statement of faith. Here's the last paragraph, which is displayed in the entrance of our church. Paragraph 9, speaking about the future. It says, the Lord Jesus Christ will return in glory. He will raise the dead and judge the world in righteousness. The wicked will be sent to eternal punishment. The righteous will be welcomed into a life of eternal joy and fellowship with God. God will make all things new and will be glorified forever. So if we belong to this church, we all claim to believe in hell. So we'd better be clear by what it means. The first thing we need to know is that hell is a basic biblical truth. It's not an obscure idea. It's not something the Bible hints at but doesn't really explain. There are things that we could say that about the Bible when it touches on them, but that is not true in the way the Bible speaks about hell. Edward Donnelly points to the massive weight of biblical testimony about hell. Hell is not something referred to only occasionally in Scripture, in one or two obscure passages. On the contrary, extensive sections of the Word of God deal with this doctrine. The Bible refers more often to the wrath of God than to his love. Our Lord Jesus Christ had far more to say about hell than he did about heaven. Even his title of Savior draws attention to hell. A Savior must save from something. And hell is the dreadful fate from which he rescues us. According to the Bible, hell is just as real as heaven. The book of Hebrews mentions six elementary Christian teachings, the ABCs of Christianity. And one of those elementary teachings is eternal judgment. And Tim Keller picks up on the fact that our primary teacher on hell is Jesus. He says, if Jesus, the Lord of love, An author of grace spoke about hell more often and in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else. It must be a crucial truth. Hell is a basic, non-negotiable biblical truth. So what I want to do in the rest of our time is to think about two questions. What does the Bible tell us about hell? And then what does hell itself teach us? In other words, once we hear what the Bible says about it, what does that do for our understanding of God? What does it mean for us and for other people? But before we think about what hell teaches us, we have to ask, what does the Bible tell us about hell? And as a starting point, we'll read one of the passages on hell. It would be helpful to turn there so you see it on the page in front of you. It's in Mark chapter 9. 
If you're using one of the Green Church Bibles, that's page 1013. I don't have the number in the larger print. It's Mark chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 42 to 48. Mark 9. This is Jesus speaking. He says in verse 48, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life, and he's speaking here about eternal life, it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. We'll pick up some of the details of that in a moment or two. But the emphasis of this passage is hell is so terrible that even the experience of drowning is preferable to hell. Even the experience of horrible physical mutilation is preferable to hell. Hell is so bad, even the most radical sacrifice in this life is worth it if we end up escaping hell. So then if hell is so bad, what is so bad about it? Well, the Bible tells us it is a place of eternal punishment. And the word place is important. According to the Bible, hell is not just a state of mind. Hell is not the bad experiences we go through in this life. Hell is not spending Christmas with our relatives. I know we laugh, but those are the kind of ways people often speak about hell. But according to the Bible, hell is a real place. And it's a place of punishment. Second Thessalonians says to Christians, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Hell is a place of punishment and those verses mention two things that will be punished in hell. It mentions the persecution or the troubling of God's people and it mentions the rejection of the gospel the refusal to obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Hell is a place of punishment, and the Bible describes that punishment in pretty graphic terms for us. We'll look at some of those in a moment. But some people latch on to that and say, the language the Bible uses about hell is just symbolic. Well, yes, it is symbolic, but the symbolic language is symbolic of something. It's giving us an indication of what hell is like, and it is not at all good. Edward Donnelly says, We recognize that the reality of hell is so far beyond our experience that language cannot adequately describe it. But by its very nature, a symbol or sign is always less than the reality it represents. The reality behind the symbol is always more. 
So there is no comfort to be found in saying that the language depicting hell is symbolic. That doesn't make hell any less dreadful. It reminds us rather that the reality is worse than the most terrifying of the symbols. So with that in mind, let's look at some of the symbols. In the New Testament, the most frequently used name for hell is Gehenna. That's the Greek word that is most often translated as the English word hell in our Bibles. It's the word that was used in Mark 9 in those verses we just read. Gehenna referred to a real place outside Jerusalem, just outside the city. The Valley of Hinnom. During the times of the Old Testament kings, the Israelites had burned their children there in that valley in sacrifice to the pagan god Moloch. When King Josiah came along, he worked to reform that situation. And as part of that reform, he desecrated the Valley of Hinnom so that no more pagan worship would go on there. And he did that by dumping dead bodies in the valley. And so from then on, the place was used only as a dumping ground. The rubbish there was burned, and so there were fires in the Valley of Hinnom day and night. The place stank, it was foul, and that is the place Jesus Christ used as his symbol of what hell is like. And Jesus describes hell, the main image he uses is fire. And what does fire symbolize? Burning conscious pain. Revelation describes hell as a lake of fire, giving the sense that those in hell are immersed in that burning. There is no escape from it. Jesus says it's a place where people are beaten with blows. Again, the idea is conscious pain. Jesus described hell as a place of agony. Revelation calls it a place of torment where there is no rest day or night. Hell is a place of punishment and that punishment is eternal. It lasts forever. The verses I just mentioned in Revelation say the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Later on we're told those in hell are tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus said hell is a place where the fire never goes out. He described the fire of hell as eternal fire. He spoke about eternal punishment in hell. And in the New Testament, the eternal aspect of hell is repeated by John the Baptist, by Paul, by Jude, by the author of Hebrews. We find it in the Old Testament as well, in the book of Daniel. There's no escaping the Bible's teaching that the punishment of hell is forever. Now, occasionally, some Christians have tried to escape that teaching. They have suggested that people in hell will be punished for a while, and then they will be annihilated. That view is called annihilationism. And I'm sure those who proposed that view had good intentions. They're trying to make a difficult teaching more palatable. But the fact is, the Bible does not teach annihilationism. And there's no amount of interpretive gymnastics can make the Bible teach that. No Christian disputes the Bible's teaching that the joys of heaven will be eternal. And the Bible uses exactly the same words to tell us the punishment of hell is eternal. So if language means anything at all, then if we accept that heaven is forever, we must accept that hell is forever too. But I'm sure for at least some of us, that raises a very significant question that troubles us in a significant way. How can that be fair? It's a significant question. If you get into a discussion about hell with a non-Christian, they will very likely ask you this question. 
And I'm sure that's what drives some people to argue for annihilationism. Let's take a moment to think about it. Here are three points of biblical teaching we need to take into account when we think about this question. First, sin is more serious than any of us realize. The reason you and I balk at punishment for sin being eternal is because we're not convinced sin is really and truly that bad. But Edward Donnelly points out that the gravity of the offense depends on the dignity of the one against whom it is committed. The gravity of the offense depends on the dignity of the one against whom it is committed. And then he gives this illustration to explain what that means. If we see someone pulling a worm to pieces, we might be irritated by that. It's cruel. It's pointless. But I think it's fair to say we would probably not be appalled by that. We wouldn't lose sleep over it. But if we saw someone mutilating a cat or a dog, we would be much more upset, I think. We'd probably actually intervene to try and stop it. Why? Because on our scale of reckoning, a cat is, would we say, it's more nobler than a worm? It's a more worthy creature than a worm? Then if we saw someone torturing a child, we would be horrified. We'd be deeply, deeply distressed. In fact, that incident would probably stay with us for the rest of our lives. In each of those examples we've just thought about, the act was the same. But the seriousness differed according to the kind of being The act was done too. So then how much more serious must it be to do wrong to Almighty God? To the uncreated creator of all things. We have a problem with the eternal nature of hell simply because we have little idea of the infinite worthiness and majesty of God. We have little idea how serious offenses against him really are and how much guilt comes with those offenses. Another point in response to this question is that each individual's punishment will be just. In other words, the Bible teaches that just as there will be degrees of reward in heaven, so there will be degrees of punishment in hell. Some will be punished more than others. And it seems part of what determines the degree of punishment is how much the individual was aware of the truth, how much light and opportunity they had in this life. Jesus spoke about that quite a bit. Listen to how he spoke about those in Israel who'd heard him teach and seen his miracles. Matthew tells us, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, those are pagan cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, another city in Israel, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, Jesus is not saying the cities of Tyre and the people from the cities of Tyre and uh, Sidon and Sodom are going to be in heaven. He's not saying that. 
The Old Testament is clear about their wickedness and their lack of repentance. The people in those cities were without excuse because creation itself showed them enough about God. But Jesus is saying the punishment of those pagan cities in hell will not be as severe as the punishment of those who heard him and saw him but yet refused to repent. Another group of people Jesus highlights is those who use religious authority to exploit others and exalt themselves. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. The implication is they will be punished more severely than the others. Because they, of all people, ought to have worshipped God and accepted Jesus. But they took all the glory to themselves. So to say that hell is a place of eternal punishment is not to say that the severity of that eternal punishment will be equal for each person in hell. Clearly, it won't be. There are other passages we could look at. We'll just notice one more on this. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says, To those who have experienced God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Those words, storing up, they also appear in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus tells his disciples to store up treasures in heaven. And the point is, all of us, are either storing up eternal blessings for ourselves or we're storing up eternal wrath. So if we belong to Jesus, just as our daily acts of obedience count for the future, so likewise if we do not belong to Jesus, our daily acts of disobedience count for the future too. They are being added to the store of wrath we will experience in hell. Each individual's punishment will be just. Punishment in hell is eternal. But no one will experience an ounce of suffering more than their own personal sin and rebellion deserve. One more point on this, and it's a very important point. Those in hell keep on sinning for eternity. Maybe we have this picture in our heads that hell is full of repentant people. That they're all ready to humble themselves before Jesus if only they had the opportunity to do so. That might be the picture we have in our heads, but it is not the biblical picture. From what the Bible tells us, there is no repentance in hell. There is never-ending defiance. When the book of Revelation describes those receiving God's wrath, it tells us they refuse to repent and glorify him. It tells us they cursed the God of heaven. It tells us they refused to repent of what they had done. Jesus described hell as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And at first that might seem to suggest repentance. But actually it indicates fury and bitter anger. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen preaches to the crowd in Jerusalem, he accuses them of resisting the Holy Spirit and betraying and murdering God's Messiah. He makes those accusations against them. And we're told in Acts 7, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Their gnashing teeth was not a sign of repentance. The next thing they did, in fact, was to stone Stephen to death. 
And so when we read about those in hell gnashing their teeth, we have to take it the same way. Yes, they are weeping with frustration because they still want to take God's place. They still want to be their own God. No doubt they weep from discomfort, but they do not weep with repentance. And so their sin and their rebellion just keeps on going for eternity. R.C. Sproul says, When a person spends time in hell, his relationship with God does not improve. The person goes to hell in the first place because he is hostile toward God. And as he experiences the outer darkness where he weeps, he gnashes his teeth in ever greater hatred of his maker. So if we wonder whether eternal punishment is fair, we have to factor in the reality that those in hell keep on sinning for eternity. That was all under the heading that hell is a place of eternal punishment. The Bible also describes it as a place of eternal banishment and disintegration. If the symbolism of fire pointed to punishment, the descriptions of hell as outer darkness or blackest darkness, they point to banishment from God's goodness and light. Paul refers to hell as being shut out from the presence of the Lord. Jesus said on judgment day, he will tell the disobedient, away from me, you evildoers. Hell is exclusion from God's goodness and love. It's being cut off from his mercy and grace. Because even today, those who reject God, they are still benefiting from his grace. Every day. We call it common grace. Jesus explained what that involves. He said, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Today, even the atheist benefits every day from God's gracious everyday gifts. And we all benefit too from God's restraining grace. That means human society is never as bad as it could be. God restrains evil to a certain extent. But those in hell are cut off from that common grace and that restraining grace. And the result is eternal disintegration. Earlier we read from Mark chapter 9, which says about those in hell, their worm does not die. Tim Keller explains what that means. Jesus is referring to the maggots that live on the corpses on the garbage heap. When all the flesh is consumed, the maggots die. Jesus is saying, however, that the spiritual decomposition of hell never ends. And that is why their worm does not die. We've used the words disintegration and Decomposition, another word for what we're talking about is ruin. Another writer says, all that is good and wholesome of people will be utterly ruined. And how a person deteriorates into all that is evil and despised in them. We're talking about humanity dehumanized. People are made in God's image for his glory, to enjoy him and to live life to the full, to be creative and to grow into their full potential. That's what will happen in heaven. But in hell, all that is stripped away as they are brought to complete ruin and waste. They will disintegrate and deteriorate, yet never become extinct. Or again, Away from the favor and face of God, we literally, horrifically, and endlessly fall apart. And there's a horrible irony in all of this because, in a sense, God is giving these people what they always wanted. They didn't want to center their lives on him. 
They didn't want to give him glory. They wanted to live for themselves. And they will. For all eternity, they will go deeper into self-centeredness and self-absorption and self-importance. When you and I see those characteristics in someone today, we recognize how ugly it is. But imagine that self-centeredness given free reign to amplify and metastasize for all of eternity. C.S. Lewis pictured people in hell perpetually concerned about their own dignity and advancement. Everyone has a grievance. Everyone lives in envy, self-importance, and resentment. In another place, he spoke about people reduced to a mere grumble that just goes on forever like a machine. Hell is a place of eternal punishment, a place of eternal banishment and disintegration, and it is a place ruled by God for God's glory. Maybe we have the idea that God rules in heaven, but that he's absent from hell. That maybe Satan rules there. But the Bible insists it is impossible to escape God. We spoke a moment ago of God saying, depart from me. And the context, that means being cut off from his goodness and love. Being deprived of his mercy and grace. It does not mean those in hell have no relationship to God. They do. Their relationship with him is not the relationship of children to a loving father. It's the relationship of unrepentant rebels to a perfectly just judge. Those in hell do experience the presence of God. He is present there in wrath. And only in wrath. Revelation 14 says, They will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. God rules in hell just as much as in heaven. Those in hell experience the presence of God, but there is no mediator for them. No one to turn away God's just wrath. And so Edward Donnelly is right to say, God who will be the heaven of one person will be the hell of another. In heaven, his presence will be our greatest joy. For those in hell, it will be their greatest torment. The Bible tells us even hell exists for God's glory. The book of Revelation tells us that repeatedly and bluntly. For example, in Chapter 11, the 24 elders round God's throne say, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Those in heaven give thanks to God for destroying those who destroy the earth. It is to God's glory that he takes evil as seriously as it deserves to be taken. It is to his glory that evil will not be swept under the carpet. Today, that's one of humanity's greatest gripes. People use it as a gripe against God. Why do the wicked prosper? there's a God? Why do evildoers get away with it if there's a God? The Bible's answer to us here and now is this. Their final destiny is not prosperity, it's ruin. 
they will not get away with it forever. That is the message of Psalm 73, for example. Hell will prove beyond any doubt the wisdom and goodness of righteousness and the folly and ugliness of evil. At the end of the Second World War, some of the head Nazis escaped to South America. There was a man who tortured and killed hundreds, probably thousands. They lived out their days in grand old style. They died in old age, untouched by human justice. Joseph Stalin, who killed tens of millions of his own people, died peacefully in his bed. Maybe some of you here have been abused. Maybe right now your abuser is walking free unpunished. It is to God's glory that those evils will not go unpunished forever. Hell will bring glory to God as he demonstrates his perfect justice and holiness. I think that side of things probably is fairly easy for us to go along with. But as you and I are thinking of this topic, maybe it's not Nazis and abusers that come into our minds. Maybe it's people you love. Friends, family members. And so we have to think about another hugely significant question. Won't hell spoil heaven? Edward Donnelly spells this out for us in its clearest form. Will it not spoil heaven for us to know that some of our friends are in hell? How can we enjoy the pleasures of glory when a loved one, a mother, husband, or sister is forever excluded? How can we respond to that? Well, we can't respond to it easily. We can't brush it off. Some of you weep in prayer for unconverted loved ones. And I realize this is a very significant, very painful issue. But let me give two responses to it. And the first one is the most difficult. It's the most difficult for me to try to say. When we are in heaven, our unconverted friends and loved ones will not be friends and loved ones anymore. The only relationships that will survive beyond this life are relationships that are in Christ. We hear that from Jesus himself. Steve preached on this passage a few weeks ago. Well, Jesus was still talking to the crowd, and he's in a house at this point. Well, Jesus was still talking to the crowd. His mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here and now, our eternal relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ coexist with other temporary relationships. But in heaven, we will be with our friends and loved ones. We will have no friends and loved ones in hell. 
And following on from that, a second response to this is that heaven, in heaven, you and I will fully share God's perspective on hell. We don't fully share it now. We can't fully share it. Our perspective is so limited. But in heaven, we will see the appropriateness and the justice of his judgment. And along with all the angels, we will praise him for it. We will praise him for all of it. Revelation chapter 19 describes the great multitude in heaven. They're responding to God's outpour judgment and they shout, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. We'll finish by asking, what does hell teach us? I have four points which I'll mention fairly briefly. First, God is holy and sin is desperately, desperately serious. J.D. Greer says, the doctrine of hell has fallen out of favor among many. But it's there for a reason. God tells us about hell to demonstrate to us the magnitude of his holiness. Hell is what hell is because the holiness of God is what it is. Hell is not one degree hotter than our sin demands that it be. Hell should make our mouths stand agape at the righteous and just holiness of God. It should make us tremble before his majesty and grandeur. We do ourselves and we do unbelievers a major disservice if we refuse to speak about hell. Yes, hell makes us uncomfortable. But as human beings, there are times when we need to be made uncomfortable. When we refuse to talk about hell, we're just playing our part in rocking people to sleep spiritually or keeping them asleep. When they do surveys on this kind of thing, most people say they believe in heaven. Almost nobody says they believe in hell. That's outside the church. So why should they care about our good news about Jesus if they're all going to heaven anyway? Or if they're just going to be annihilated after death? If we think about Jesus' teaching on hell, why did he talk about it? It was to warn people. He spoke about hell to motivate them to repentance. Tim Keller says the truth about hell is supposed to act like smelling salts. They used to use to bring people around when they fainted. It's supposed to wake us up to the true danger we're in without Christ. And those of us who are Christians... Reflecting on the truth about hell reminds us what the fundamental human problem is. It is not poverty, as bad as poverty is. It's not disease, it's not broken families, as bad as all those things are. The fundamental human problem is the wrath that's coming on humanity because of their sin. As Christians, we are compassionate people. We want to relieve people's suffering, all kinds of suffering. We want to relieve poverty and disease. We want to see healthy families. We want to relieve suffering here and now. And when we're conscious of the reality of hell, we want to relieve eternal suffering too. 
And because eternal suffering is eternal, our primary focus, whatever energy we put into relieving suffering here and now, and we should put energy into that, still our primary focus will be on relieving eternal suffering. So we will speak about sin. We will speak about repentance. We'll speak about hell. Because we're concerned not only to relieve temporary suffering, we want especially to relieve eternal suffering. Hell teaches us that God is holy and sin is serious. And second, it teaches us that Jesus is Lord. What I mean is Jesus is Lord of us, his people. Most of us find it very, very difficult to talk about hell. And that is the way it should be. If we can speak about hell frivolously, if we can make jokes about hell, or if we can even speak about it with a kind of glee, then we either haven't understood it, or we have none of God's compassion in our heart. We should find it difficult to talk about hell. But we must not pretend that we are more kind and gracious than the Son of God. We noticed earlier Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And we mustn't give people the impression we are more compassionate than the Son of God. How would we do that? Well, we do it when we apologize for the doctrine of hell. When we act like, I wish this wasn't true, I wouldn't do it this way, but it's in the Bible, so I'm forced to talk to you about it. If we take that approach, we're acting like we are more loving than Jesus Christ. If we claim Jesus is our Lord, then we unashamedly take on board what he taught. We don't apologize for our Lord as if we're embarrassed by his teaching. We take his side no matter how unpopular that might be. You and I will never be more compassionate than Jesus. Jesus was the primary teacher about hell and Jesus is the greatest lover of this world that's going to hell. Jesus didn't just weep over this lost world. He came and died for it in the middle of it. He went through hell for it. That's the third thing hell teaches us. God is loving. As only when we come to terms with the truth about hell, only then can we begin to grasp the depth of God's love. That the Father would send the Son and the Son would willingly come to die for our salvation. Donnelly says, In God's grace, the one who tells us most about hell is the only one who can save us from it. What more can we ask? The person whom God sends to warn us is the very person who can deliver us. That is the beauty and the marvel of God's warning. He sends the warning by means of the deliverer. This is not a harsh, gloating message. It is infinitely kind and infused with hope. We can come to Jesus and be saved. He has already paid for our salvation. And last of all, hell teaches us that God's people are immeasurably blessed. If you're a Christian, just take a deep breath and realize this. All these horrors we've been speaking about, by God's grace, I will never experience them. Jesus Christ has rescued me from them all. The doctrine of hell should produce in us a spirit of unbroken contentment, no matter what our circumstances may be. 
When next you think that life is treating you roughly and that God could have arranged your circumstances more lovingly, take a look into the pit of hell and remember, I was going there, but now I am not. Instead, I am on my way to heaven, for God has saved me. What are all the disappointments, pains, and sorrows of this life? They are nothing in comparison with what I deserve. Nothing compared with what I will inherit. we are God's people, we can say thanks be to God for his gift beyond words. We will have an opportunity for questions or comments, but let me just pray. (coughs) Father, we say again that this subject is painful for us and it's overwhelming for us I realize how poorly I've treated this subject I realize that things that I've said have put a sword in the hearts of many people who are sitting here tonight and so I pray with them that you will have mercy and our friends, our family, have mercy on our casual acquaintances. People we hardly have any concern for. Bring them to repentance and faith. We take a moment now quietly to plead for them by name where we sit. We bring their names to you. Father, we ask that you will have mercy.